Hello again, witches, seekers, and friends, and welcome to the Fat Feminist Witch Podcast, the show where we do a little ranting, raving, and wand waving. I'm your host, Paige Vanderbeck, and together we're going to explore magic and spirituality, social justice, the psychic realm, and truly modern witchcraft. How can you tell that somebody is a witch? Is it something unspoken? Is it the public aspect of their lifestyle, their job, or expertise? Or is it, even if you don't want to admit it, their appearance? One of the many uncomfortable realities of the entire history of witchcraft is that how a woman looked, either naturally or or through her own preferences and tastes, was often taken as an indication of maliciousness and the practice of witchcraft. And as is an uncomfortable reality for women today, there was just no fucking way to win with this shit. If you were considered ugly or had birthmarks or were disabled in some way, you were a witch. If you were too sexy, you were a witch. Red hair, thanks entirely to genetics, witch. Too tall, too thin, too fat, too fucking much. That was the problem. They were just too much for people. There are a hundred podcast episodes worth of things I could talk about in regards to the ways appearances and fashion signaled witchcraft. But today I want to focus in on something that I think is empowering. Something that was a choice for those who wore it or are wearing it now. (laughs) And something that signaled a new wave of magic and feminism was on the horizon. Naturally, as I often do, I am going back to the 1990s, because you know I love it, and I am talking about whimsigothic fashion, art, and decor. If you don't recognize the term whimsigothic, that is totally okay. I did not either. This particular style is my favorite of all time, because it included celestial objects and imagery with shiny bits and moody jewel tones. I've always just called it 90s celestial, though everyone who followed this incredibly popular trend were not witches, there was a decidedly magical element to the look, and many real witches and pagans took it on in a big way, incorporating it not only into their their regular attire or their fashion, but also the way they decorated their altars, their magical spaces, their, you know, their public gatherings, and how they dressed for ritual and for gatherings. You know, it wasn't their regular clothing. It was something special. So today we're going to talk a little bit about where Whimsigoth came from, what it meant for witches in society in the 90s, and what makes some of its individual elements so genuinely magical. And the reason I'm doing this is because this is a trend that has come back around. I got the idea to do an episode about this this summer when I heard the word Whimsigoth for the first time. I have this old clock that is dark blue with a silver moon and a gold sun and little stars and stuff, and it's from the 90s. But I've never had hands for it, so it was just like a weird statue for a very long time. And recently I found really pretty, like, ornate gold hands and a little motor, and I fixed it all up. And I posted a picture on Instagram just for fun. I I know lots of witches around my age, which is the 30s and 40s, would get a real nostalgic kick out of it. And one person told me that the, you know, the kids today 
had started calling this particular style whimsigoth, whimsical, and gothic. What a fabulous word. Isn't that perfect? Uh, and that it has, you know, come back around. It, it's gotten very popular again. The word whimsigoth is so accurate for this vibe, for this particular style, which is dark and moody while being very obviously inspired by fantasy. And when I started doing some research, I found that I could not actually pin down a definitive origin of this style in the 90s or even the 80s. It was something that either developed totally organically or just sprang up overnight and no one knows when or why. And that that little bit of mystery, you know, it got me hooked. <laughs> I was hooked. I'm fully committed now. So that's what I don't know about Whimsigoth, why all of a sudden in the 90s, everything was like cobalt blue and gold and silver and covered in suns and moons. I don't know what happened there. But there's a lot to know about this style. There's a lot of history behind it, behind the imagery, behind the colors, behind where it came from. So let's talk about the things that I do know about Whimsigoth. The term, first of all, is a new one. This particular style never had an actual name. You know, when I was talking about it with friends, it was always something that we would describe. So we would, you know, we'd be talking about how we saw it at the thrift store. You know, it's like dark blue or like dark purple and there's suns and moons. And sometimes the moons and the suns have faces and there's a little bit of glitter on there. It was something we had to describe. There wasn't a word. The word whimsigothic is, is new. And it was coined by Evan Collins of Consumer Aesthetic Research Institute. So it's a, it's a marketing word, right? Um, but everything that I can identify as influences for the style uh, in the 80s and 90s and in now are, are very old. It's pretty interesting. So here's Evan's description of what whimsigothic means. Heads up, it goes on for a while and it rambles a little bit and some of it makes me laugh. <laughs> so, you know... So he says, this aesthetic existed primarily in the late 80s to the mid 90s, contemporaneous with the peak popularity of gothic inspired pop and rock music. Tim Burton and the graphic design work of Margot Chase, Vrontikis, and a bit of Vaughn Oliver. Dramatic interiors, curtains, velvet, wrought iron, plush seating, furniture with exaggerated forms, romantic movement influences, stained glass, candles, gold plus red plus black plus blue plus purple plus rich green, glass baubles, jewels, those little table fountains with built-in fog machines, crystal balls, celestial iconography, heraldic suns, moons, and stars, witch, court jester, medium, mystic, tarot, and wizard iconography, wicca, rich textured surfaces, fashion-wise, lacy clothing, jewelry with celestial themes, sheer fabrics, velvet, similar color palettes to the interior design, very popular in the fields of furniture, product, fashion, and interior design, some definite Baroque, Rococo, and Art Nouveau influence as well. It's a postmodern melange of style. Formerly titled Whimsical Mystical Gothic Celestial. <laughs> I don't know anyone that actually called it that, Evan, but okay. So that was that was his description. It goes on for, for quite some time, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Uh, but the thing I like the most about it is at the very end, it is a postmodern melange of styles. That really is it. I couldn't have said that better myself. 
even within the 20th century. The style is inspired by goth from the 80s, new age and activist clothing from the 70s, peasant and bohemian attire from the 60s, uh, art nouveau from the very beginning of the 1900s. I mean, it, it jumps all over. And that's just in, you know, the 1900s. <laughs> so fun to call the 1990s the 1900s. And that's just within the, that century, right? It actually goes back a little bit further. The number one most obvious influence on the look, and it's a word he didn't actually use in his description, the look, the iconography, and even the mystical vibe is some of my favorite, the delightful and disgusting weirdos, the Victorians. <laughs> it always goes back to the damn Victorians. There's just... I don't think people re realize quite how much they have influenced a lot of popular culture. I don't know if people really realize it. Um, and there, there's a very good reason for this. One that goes beyond aesthetics. The Victorian era is what we consider to be the first wave of the feminist movement and is also a forefather to almost all of the modern magic and witchcraft that is European in origin from the 20th century and to now. The 1990s, when Whimsigoth was, was new, uh, <laughs> that was feminism's third wave after the incredible bra-burning era of the 60s and 70s, which was the second wave. So we may not know exactly how Whimsigoth happened in the, the 80s or the 90s, but that gives us a clue as to why. I have said this a hundred times, loudly, to anyone who will listen, <laughs> and some who don't want to. It is an established fact that during every wave of feminism, people that we would call witches appear. In the Victorian era, the spiritualists and occultists were the witches. In the 60s and 70s, the, the New Age, satanic, uh, pagan, transcendental meditation people were the witches. And in the 90s, the witches were the witches. The Wiccans were the, Wic <laughs> were the witches. You know, Wicca was created in the 1950s. But the 90s is when it blew up and, and truly went international. Uh, 20 to 30 years later... All the little girls and little kids who discovered empowerment and magic through the Wiccan wave are the adult witches writing books, designing and selling supplies, teaching classes, and mentoring newer generations of witches. Hi, it's me. <laughs> so that is, that is a, a subject that I just find so endlessly fascinating is this, this undeniable connection between witchcraft and feminism. There's just no denying that. You cannot separate the two. Then there's fashion. Fashion is, fashion is a funny thing, isn't it? It's, it's something that we do for ourselves, but it's also a tool we use to connect and communicate with the world around us. It's a signal to other people, especially those of a, of a like mind. You know, it's a beacon that says, hey, I see that you're a witch. I am too. You're safe here. Let's talk about witchy shit. It's also a way to celebrate and engage with things that bring us joy, like art, music, movies, nature, spirituality, whatever it is. Even if fashion isn't specifically one of those things. So a graphic t-shirt with the emblem of a favorite superhero isn't something you wear because you're into high fashion. It's because you are into the superhero and want other fans to recognize you as part of the subculture. 
Whimsigoth is both an expression of interest in the images and ideas represented in it, but also in fashion specifically, so it's got both. The whimsical portion of the style comes from, you know, the boho peasant girl look from the 60s and 70s. This style was very earthy, very warm, flowy, and light, uh, or simple, and, and kind of easy to move around in. You know, they weren't wearing a lot of bras or, or shapewear, or, you know, there was no corsets at this time. Very few of these women were wearing girdles or anything of that nature. It was comfortable. It uses some medieval Renaissance fair type imagery and was used to convey that someone believed in hippie type ideals like free love. Um, my favorite part, using lots of fun hallucinogens while listening to amazing rock and roll. Or more seriously, the activism from the time, like feminism, civil rights, um, anti-capitalism, uh, a belief in pacifism, you know, anti-war and community outreach. All of this was was very big. And there are, there are other people who did not necessarily dress like hippies who believed in those things. And those, those were beatniks and they wore a lot of kind of basic and black, which is, of course, also very witchy. Another thing about, you know, your hippies, your beatniks, what have you, is that they had no money. <laughs> they had no money. They were broke as hell. They lived in communes. They made a lot of their own clothes. They they wore tattered clothes and didn't really care about holes and rips. They worked in a lot of low-class fashion items into their look, like jeans. Denim was for factory workers and cowboys. But hippies made jeans cool. They're the reason that teenagers wear jeans. So while you could definitely argue that no trend can be completely removed from materialism and capitalism as a driving force there, that was the idea behind this style of fashion. It stood out. It set someone apart from accepted society. So it was a way of saying, look, I don't believe in I don't believe in war. I don't believe we're doing things right. I don't believe in, you know, poverty, keeping people broke. So I'm going to act broke to show you that. <laughs> but it, it set them apart uh, from regular society, from regular political ideals. It also broke a lot of gender rules. It broke a lot of gender rules. And this is where androgyny began to grow. Men had long hair. They wore jewelry. Many wanted to separate themselves from the violence associated with some darker aspects of masculinity and got involved with, you know, pacifism and ending the war, you know, not, not focusing so much on violent aspects of the culture. Women, lots of women wore suits and ties, men's hats and shoes. So think of a style like Diane Keaton in Annie Hall. Don't, don't think about who directed the movie. Um, <laughs> but her style, that was a statement that women didn't need to appear or perform uh, femininity in this, this um, kind of cartoonish way to be whatever type of woman that they wanted to be. Then you had people like David Bowie, who wore a lot of makeup and glitter and glam, which is most definitely a precursor to the goth style of the 80s, when the idea of androgyny, what we might call gender fluidity now, was no longer an outlier in society as much as it was a growing trend. It was everywhere, especially with younger people, which I bet sounds pretty familiar, <laughs> doesn't it? Now, the gothic portion 
of Whimsigoth, of course, comes from the gothic fashion that developed in the 1980s as sort of an offshoot of punk fashion. Many style trends in history are tied closely with music, and goth is no exception. Goth is, in the words of Cat Black, who adheres to the style, it's a music-based subculture. So you can wear the clothes, you can ponder about death, you can hang out in graveyards and carry a beautiful lace parasol. Probably my favorite gothic accessory is those beautiful lace parasols. I love them. But if you don't also, you know, shake your ass to Bauhaus or whatever the goth bands are that that are cool with the youths. Jesus, I'm so old. Uh, at the local goth club, you may not technically be a part of the sub subculture. The clothing is definitely inspired by music, goth music, punk music, with its studs and leather and safety pins, uh, heavy or black metal, and then some gothy kind of techno shit. And you have cyber goths, also very cool looking. But absolutely none of that, none of that would happen without the influence from the Victorian era. There are too many varieties of goth for me to cover. So let's stick with the type that I have seen the most in, you know, pagan and witchy spaces, which is the type you might associate with vampires and the occult. Maybe that show Penny Dreadful, you know? So blacks, reds, purples, a lot of black lace, bustled skirts, corsets, uh, dark makeup, black nail polish. Uh, gosh, I love black nail polish. I cannot explain it. But I have such an intense attraction to men and people who aren't women who are sporting the black nail polish. <laughs> like I could not find you, you know, it's possible for me to not find you attractive in any way. But then I notice that your nails are painted black and suddenly you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen. My goodness. Um, on the Wikipedia page for gothic fashion, super fun Wikipedia page, by the way, it states that goth men also use makeup at a much higher rate than the average man. Um, and there is definitely a bit of gender fluidity built into the entire goth vibe. This makes sense when you know a little bit about Victorian mourning clothes, mourning as in mourning death, grief, which are the inspiration behind this particular gothic sexy vampire look. In the later Victorian era, funeral and mourning rituals became incredibly intense. They were societally imposed, and of course, they were very profitable. In 1861, Queen Victoria's husband died unexpectedly, and the queen began to strictly wear black attire. And she continued this for the rest of her life, which was 40 years, as she was still in mourning. You know, she never remarried or anything. And this is the thing that happened, you know, <laughs> this happens a lot uh, in England, especially, but it's it spread all over Europe, of course, is that when the queen or the royal family starts to do something, it kind of seeps out into the larger culture. Everybody wants to be a part of that. And it wasn't just about clothing. It wasn't just about wearing black clothing. There was an entire culture and ritual of mourning in England and, and other parts of Europe at that time. Even after Queen Victoria died in 1901, mourning clothes were popular up until about World War I, when that was simply a luxury that people couldn't afford. 
the entire practice, these mourning rituals, and its fashion restrictions, because they were societally imposed, applied mostly to women, came with a lot of strict societal rules, not just about dressing, but about how to behave while in mourning, like remaining in full veil and staying home for an entire year, not remarrying for at least two years, giving up their social life and devoting their, you know, their life to church service until people thought, you know, they had done enough. Fashion-wise, for the first year, a mourning woman wore an entirely black outfit. And it wasn't just, you know, her dress, the, the cuffs, collars, buttons, the piping and the thread on the dresses was all black. They wore black hats, gloves, veils, shoes, stockings even. And after she had worn that for at least a year, sometimes two, she could start to include little pops of color, <laughs> they say, um, little pops of color like white, gray, or purple, never red never ever red and some browns and beiges if they were you know if they were considered a lower class person and they were wearing undyed fabric this was also kind of acceptable you know all of your accessories were black but as black as possible you know um people started wearing strings of black pearls um the stone the crystal jet became incredibly popular even um even women who were not very rich wore jewelry with imitation jet set into it. They also, some of the things they did were really kind of beautiful in a macabre way. You know, they collected locks of hair from their loved one and they turned these into brooches or pendants that could be worn close to the heart, which I think is really beautiful. And though it was definitely um, intended, <laughs> intended to be a very emotional thing to to signal something emotional to signal that you are different from other people who have not who are not experiencing grief at this time it also became a fashion statement and a way of flaunting status and economic privilege mourning staying in mourning for a long time was honestly a privilege that a lot of women and families just could not afford Especially if it was, you know, the man of the house who had died, if it was the husband of the house, the, the main breadwinner. It's not like women weren't actually supposed to be working, right? But lots of women were. They were working in factories and for large companies. And they could not return to work for a certain amount of time. They wouldn't be taken back. And they had to wear black. They had to dye all of their clothing black just so they could return to work and feed the remaining members of their family so that their mourning period does not go on indefinitely. And this is where we get a lot of the stylistic influence for a lot of 80s goths, especially the, you know, <laughs> the vampirefreaks.com crowd. Um, but also the, the practice of making death a defining topic in one's life. In the Victorian era, people spent lots of time in graveyards. They went to parties with mediums and psychics. They held seances to contact the dead. And the use of tarot cards, I mean, it shot right through the roof. And more people turned to spiritism and the occult for answers about life after death because they were encouraged to think about it all the time. They had to focus on death. And so this is when people could really go 
Do I really actually know what happens after we die? I want to take a quick break and thank the amazing witches and magical people who support me and the podcast through Patreon. Their enthusiastic and patient support is what has allowed me to do this show for the last eight years. I wish I could scream every one of their names from the rooftops, but I am incredibly fortunate uh, and there are just too many of them. So every episode, I will take a moment in the, to shout out to three of these lovely people as an expression of my very sincere gratitude. So Adrienne, Carmen, and Dolores, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I couldn't do it without you. We had our own version of the, you know, the popular psychic parlor tricks in the 80s and 90s with Dionne Warwick's Psychic Friends Network and the ever-incredible Miss Cleo, who I absolutely loved. Uh, Tarot cards and angel oracle cards were really huge. Witches were all over TV, uh, and Ouija boards had a a little renaissance. It makes sense that women and girls would reach back to these previous moments in history when they had demanded the right to feel empowered and then put that newfound power on display. Also, there was still just enough fear of witchcraft and Satanism in 90s North America to use that vibe to to gain fear and respect, to signal that they weren't taking anyone's shit anymore. It had worked before in the 60s and 70s uh, for Anton LaBey and the Church of Satan. So that's the history. That's where whimsigothic fashion and home decor and design came to be. And that's also why it is appealing to witches and magical people beyond aesthetic reasons. But those aesthetics can't be ignored. I mean, (laughs) what a vibe, right? Everything from the colors to the icons to the fabrics and the textures has magical significance and can help us tap into our own inner power. The colors you'll find most in Whimsigothic design are what we call jewel tones. Sapphire blue, emerald green, ruby red, amethyst purple, and obsidian black, and then also some earthy browns and oranges. Every color has its own meaning and and elemental association within magic. But when you look at all of these jewel tones together, the earth element is coming through loud and clear. The 90s were a time when caring about the planet, about climate change, the ozone layer, which is like something I rarely think of, but was such a huge deal back then, um, and fighting against pollution all became incredibly trendy. Uh, Also, it was legitimately scary, of course. It was a very real concern. People started to take it very seriously. When I started learning about Wicca and paganism, the most common way to describe it was as an earth-based religion. And that was something that really drew me to it, that it it focused on the power of the earth and how we as human beings fit into it and existed alongside it rather than being separate from it. We weren't two separate entities. We were all one thing. This was also a time when we loved the goddess. Big earth mother energy, and that is all the earth element. So let's look at the colors. 
Black is a defiant color to wear. It is both muted and magnetic somehow. It's so universal that anyone can wear it, but choosing to wear a lot of it sets you apart. In magic, black is a color of protection and transformation. Its association with death is, is just as clear, but witches know that death is not the end and is merely a transition from one state of being to the next. The sapphire and cobalt blues are perhaps the colors I'm most associated with Whimsigoth. And I actually began collecting cobalt blue glass during the 90s, especially for my altar tools and decorations. My first ever altar decoration was a, was a plate that you can burn candles on or put things on, whatever. It was a gift from a friend and it was cobalt blue and I still have it. And since then, I have just added more and more pieces to the whole the whole vibe. These types of blue are associated with the third eye, with psychic energy, uh, the cosmos, you know, space, and of course, vision, not just psychic vision, creative vision, the, the way you see the world, the way you see yourself. In Whimsigoth, it's often combined with the celestial imagery. And, you know, very simply, it represents the beautiful dark color of the night sky, which appears the beautiful dark blue, right? And in that way, I think it's the color of curiosity and of asking those deep spiritual questions like, where do I fit into all of this? Purple's another color that we associate with the night sky and with the cosmos, as well as the moon, magic, and, and more psychic energy. It's the color of the crown chakra, another one of our, our higher chakras that allow us to connect with the divine and receive our messages from the universe. Purple is also the color of royalty and prestige and has been since ancient times. Purple dye was incredibly expensive and time consuming to make. So it was reserved for use by royals and other people with, with incredibly high rank. So it's a color of power and success. Purple screams, I know that I'm powerful and magical, and you're going to know it too. The beautiful deep greens are a little self-explanatory. Uh, that is the ultimate earth color, right? That is our earth magic color. It is both a cool color and also very comforting, kind of warm. It's a color that makes people smile, but it also calls back to something dark and deep and a little bit scary, like the wilderness. In witchcraft, it often represents fertility and growth. And since it's the color of the heart chakra, it also inspires empathy and compassion. Some also associate it with money and wealth. And the 90s were a time when a lot of people who'd been marginalized worked hard to achieve financial success and independence. They were, they were making their place in this industry that had so long been denied to them. And that, that business-minded, like, ball-busting bitch of the 90s is such an awesome archetype. You know, it, it gives me chills, even though it's not my, it's not my vibe. It's not, <laughs> that is not me. That is not who I want to be either. But it is so defiant and so provocative. And as a kid, I was like, damn, look at these women. You know, they were, I don't want to have kids. I want to make a lot of money. I want to have a career and I want it to be something that I really want to do and that no one else can tell me I'm not allowed to. That's so impressive. 
And this brings us to the, the deep reds. This is the color of blood and sexuality. It's, it's the color of sin, really. <laughs> and that's exactly what we were all going for. Like the previous waves of feminism, the feminism movement, sexual freedom was something to fight for at this time. Even in the 80s, when those, you know, sexy vampire goths were donning the Victorian-style mourning clothes, they often included this rich blood red color, which would not have ever been allowed in Victorian times because it was the color of sin. This essentially erased the imposed um, chastity and loss of personal freedom <laughs> that those mourning clothes represented. It, it cut that right out. It reclaimed Victorian mourning clothes for people who didn't want to let society dictate how they lived their life. Red is the color of desire, passion, and, and even anger. So wearing it casually is a signal to others that you are going to get what you want and nobody better try and stop you. The earthy browns and oranges played a supporting role in the whole, the whole color palette. Um, but it really deepened those earth magic vibes, you know? And orange is also a color of, of confidence, of happiness and attraction. It's a color that opens the road to opportunities. These colors were all used in a lot of ways, but in clothing and in fabric especially, they became a fully sensual experience. Fabrics like velvet, satin, silk, uh, and suede, they are just nice to look at, you know? They, they, they beg you to reach out and touch them. You just can't help it. They are so tactile. Uh, and the way they were worn made it clear that how good they felt was part of the point. The 90s were, oh my God, an exquisitely brawless time in history. Oh, just my favorite. Um, bless them. Loose, flowy, sometimes very sheer fabric, short skirts, and an obvious lack of constricting underwear. That sends out such a sexy message. <laughs> it's so fabulous. It says, I want to be touched, and I want to touch myself, and I want to feel good, and I am not ashamed of it. Uh, I personally am a an incredibly touch-sensitive person. I'm so sensitive to touch that I, I don't really touch a lot of people kind of casually because it's intense. Um, so wearing clothes like that, they don't feel like they were made to torture me or to hide my body or to make me more palatable to those around me. You know, they, they feel good, physically good. And that makes me feel mentally and emo emotionally good. I don't like very heavy, very constrictive clothing. You know, I, God damn it, I hate buckles. Fuck buckles. <laughs> With all due respect to all of you badass goths out there, fuck buckles. And metal zippers and wires and boning and shapewear. I hate it. In my opinion, uh, <laughs> this, this sticking point is a vast improvement over more traditional goth clothing because I just, I can't handle it. I can't, I feel so heavy when I'm wearing it, which sounds funny to say as a, as a very large person, right? But they look incredibly fucking rad. I love it. It looks amazing. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, that is not my vibe, 
but I love the vibe and I love what you are saying with it. Especially things like corsets. Oh my god. Corsets are probably like they're worse than buckles. I <laughs> I would personally rather chew glass than put a corset on my body. But I have never ever seen anyone wearing a corset that didn't look sexy as hell. Just incredible. When I work magic and do rituals or spells, I wear this black dress that is, I mean, it's so thin, there's almost no point in wearing it, uh, except that it feels really good on my skin, it's soft, right? And it also brings in that protective and that defiant energy of the color black. Also, if I spill candle wax on it, it hurts just a little bit less. <laughs> oh, I'm rambling. Um, the point here, I got so, I got so hung up on the buckles. Um, the point here is that it, it shortens the distance between my own body, my senses, my senses, and the world around me. This is also, I think, why many people work sky-clad or in the nude uh, in magic, which is something that I used to read a lot more about in the 90s than I do today. But all this goes beyond clothing and fashion. There was a very DIY vibe to the Whimsa Gothic style. A lot of the iconography looked hand-drawn. Everyone was about that collage life, you know, from kids to graphic designers, everyone was collaging. Um, walls were painted with sponges, oh, sponge painting, and various different tones and shades of these moody earth colors to give the impression of, of texture, something tactile, you know? It was, it was that same sensual experience. It was simultaneously a very lush and lux luxurious look uh, that could be very accessible and that you could make for yourself. It was so creative. It was so artistic. It really, it bridges the gap between the material world and our own inner emotional one. This is mirrored by the inclusions of gold and silver in the, the whole, the whole palette. Glitter and metallics were, oh, they were so huge in the 90s, mainly because that's, you know, that made it very, very modern. <laughs> it took some of the more retro and like old fashioned motifs from the past and brought them into the new age. It also brought in that very whimsical, magical type vibe, you know, it was very ethereal. We literally slathered just glitter on every single part of our bodies and then we sprayed it in hairspray and put it all over our clothes. There was just glitter everywhere, absolutely everywhere. I can't tell you how many people I know with like eye problems because, <laughs> because of the glitter that got in there and scratched their eyeballs. It happened a lot. It was, uh, yeah, it's like shrapnel of the 90s. Um, <laughs> Both silver and gold, those are our, you know, those are our celestial colors. Silver is for the moon and gold is for the sun, with stars being composed sort of of both. Also of other colors in the palette, you know, the blues and the reds. Silver is a very cool color, while gold is hot. Silver is nighttime and gold is daylight. Silver is romantic and poetic, and gold is dynamic and materialistic, though not in a bad way. Yet again, this, this combines the spiritual and the material in a really, really beautiful way that you just can't help but look at and want to get closer to. This brings us to the most recognizable piece of the Whimsagothic puzzle, 
the mystical iconography. <laughs> it's the best. More specifically, suns, moons, and stars, usually featuring a very serene-looking facial expression. <laughs> These images are actually very, very old, you know, older even than the Victorian age, uh, when they did also have a, a swell in popularity. I'm so excited about, I found names for these, they have a real name. So there's the sun in splendor and the moon in her plentitude. Just absolutely beautiful. Um, and these were actually popular images in heraldry. So those are like the crests and the flags and the coats of arms that you would see uh, when an army is riding into battle. The oldest version that, that we know of that still exists um, was in the 1300s with King Edward II of England. Super long time ago, definitely predates the Victorians. For him, it, it was a symbol of being chosen by, you know, divine power. It was supported by the heavens themselves and whatever quest they were doing. You know, it's got a, it's got a little hint of like a manifest destiny vibe, which is not super cool. But those images have been used in a lot of, a lot of different ways over the years. And of course, the sun and the moon themselves are very, that's the very definition of ancient. I mean, our, our reverence and our curiosity for them predates the 1300s by quite a lot. It, it, it predates language. It's, <laughs> it's always been a part of us. So these, these serene and smiling luminaries, they do bring with them the attitude of a bit of a battle cry. But that's not quite what we see when we look at them, especially not anymore. What I see is an example of human beings wanting to see themselves reflected back in the magic of nature and the mysterious universe that stretches beyond it. It's another symbol of us searching for our place and our purpose. When an image combines the sun and the moon into a a single thing, a single being, that is a symbol of balance and of duality, you know, two very different opposing ideas. Not only can they exist at the same time, but they are in fact two sides of a single coin. You know, opposites don't just attract, they match. This is definitely an aesthetic that would speak to plenty of witches and to magical practitioners. We love balance. So the heraldic suns and moons did have a bit of a renaissance during the Victorian era, uh, thanks to their association with alchemy and hermeticism, both of which inspired modern occultism in like a very huge way. The expression, as above, so below, is iconic in witchcraft and Victorian occultism. And this is actually a paraphrase of a major hermetic concept. The full quote is, that which is above is from that which is below, and that which is below is from that which is above. This is what we see on the Magician card in the original Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, a magician working with the physical earthly elements and the cosmic spiritual ones because they are just two different expressions of the same energy. So why is whimsigothic fashion and style popular now? Well, because women are fighting <laughs> and casting spells and reclaiming their sexual and reproductive power. We are well into feminism's fourth wave. And just as we've seen every other time, 
when women fight for themselves and for each other, witches appear. Some have been there the whole time, but some are new. And they are changing and redefining what it means to be and to look like a witch. As much as I loved the 90s, I know it wasn't perfect. I think the thing I miss the least, <laughs> I don't miss it at all, was the rampant fat phobia. Oh my goodness. Fat phobia was so normalized and so disturbing in the 1990s. TV shows and movies for kids made light of disordered eating and he even made it look like it was so normal. Everyone was doing it. All girls do this. No one eats. But then if you were naturally thin, well, you must have an eating disorder and are therefore a bad influence. <laughs> there was just no way to win. And being fat or wearing plus sizes back then, I mean, you know, it was bleak, bleak. You were even less likely to find cool clothes and big sizes and popular trends rarely made it into plus size stores and that is the silliest part of it you know beyond that it's very real discrimination but we're talking about fashion so that was that was the the, the problem with fashion um so now if you're like oh my god i want to cultivate this whimsicothic aesthetic i love this but i am a very eco-conscious witch, and I want to shop at a thrift or a vintage store. If you are plus size, you might have a pretty hard time. And we all know that as cute as the clothes released by like fast fashion brands like Shein can be, they're contrary to a lot of these ideas um, that make this look so magical. So that's where the DIY spirit comes back in full force. It's time for you witches to redefine what a whimsical, mystical, gothic, celestial, <laughs> magical practitioner looks like, what they value, and how you might communicate that to others. There is one store online that specializes in plus-size vintage and regularly features whimsigothic pieces and, and hold like, you know, a little look. And that's Bad Moon Vintage, and I'll put the links you need to find them in the description. Um, I highly recommend finding the proprietor on Instagram and just looking at her photos and videos for inspiration, even if she doesn't have anything on the site right now that is your size or that works. She posts new videos and new photos all the time, and she looks incredible. She, you know, in addition to classic whimsy gothic. She also has collections of sexy vampire goth dresses, uh, looks you might have seen on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> and even some whimsical without the goth, like fairy princess type outfits. Of course, with it being Halloween, she's also highlighting some really, really cool costumes. Uh, this is not a paid ad, by the way. <laughs> this is just the very best source that I have found for inspiration, uh, plus, you know, the actual ability to buy plus-size clothes that not only match the whimsicothic aesthetic, but that I think communicate and honor a person's innate magical power through the creative medium of fashion. So how can you tell someone is a witch? based on their appearance. 
look for colors, symbols, and textures that call back to times in history when women fought for power. Imagine the way these clothes and these accessories would feel, how they would activate your senses. Find elements of nature and the cosmos that tell you that this person is plugged right into the universe's personal party line. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of The Fat Feminist Witch. If you want email updates about new episodes, books, and blog posts, go to my website, thefatfeministwitch.ca, and click the follow button. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. The Fat Feminist Witch podcast would not be possible without the generosity of those who support me via Patreon, and I am eternally grateful. If you would like to support the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash thefatfeministwitch, where you will find show notes for every episode, hot tips about future topics, uh, a special lunar newsletter, and other really fun exclusive content. For Fat Feminist Witch mugs, t-shirts, journals, stickers, and more, you can visit my Tee Public shop. So check that out at the link in the description for the episode. <laughs>